0: Uh, well, please open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 19. I think we're going to have much more as we study the scriptures today. We're going to have much more to sing about. Um, this is a passage, you know, sometimes, um, again, aging does weird things to how you think. Um, this is one of those passages that I wish I would have understood sooner. This is one of those passages where I wish I would have learned this in my teenage years. Even down in my... In, in my elementary age years. It would have made such a difference in my life. It's making a difference in my life and I hope it'll make a huge difference in your life this morning. So as we read the text this morning, I'm gonna ask and invite you to ask yourself a question as we read. Okay, so, so be engaged with this. Don't, don't just listen to uh, it being read, but ask yourself a question as you read. What difference should the finished work of Christ on the cross make in your life? What difference should the finished work of Christ on the cross make in your life? And let's bring it up to more of a present tense. What difference is the finished work of Christ? making in your life on a day-to-day basis? Has it made a difference today? Has it made a difference already this morning? And as we read, what difference did the finished work of Christ make in the lives of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus? Are you ready? Let's go. Let's go to John 19, verses 28 through 40. 2. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, let's don't just read past that too quickly, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Now, I'm not really reading that well. I should have read it more like this. He said, I I thirst. And then he gets to this point. You cross-reference it with the other Gospels. This is really what he said. It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Hmm. Now the place where he was crucified there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Oh, Heavenly Father, I think one of the best ways that we could pray this morning is would you help us to really believe what we believe. God, some of these passages are familiar to so many of us. We pray for fresh eyes to see familiar things. God, we pray for the minister of your Holy Spirit to to cut our hearts open in a surgical way. Because, Lord, we keep those hearts pretty tightly closed in so many ways, even to you, and we try. And so, God, would you bring your word to bear upon our our lives so that this morning when we leave here, we could leave here with great confidence in the finished work of Christ, with great comfort because of the cross of Christ, and with great courage to declare the cross of Christ everywhere we go. We love you, Lord. And God, we lift up a visitor that might be here today. We lift up a young person this morning, someone who may not know you in a saving way, that they couldn't with confidence. Say that if they died today, they would know that they would stand and see you face to face because you died to save them. Would you give them grace for salvation today? Would you melt their hearts with your amazing love and what you've done for them in Jesus? We pray all these things this morning in Jesus' majestic name. Amen. Amen. How important is confidence in living our lives one day to the next? How important is confidence? Have, have you ever experienced consequences that have come from a lack of confidence? What role does confidence play in things like fear? I don't know if we ever we kind of drew, drawn this out. What role does confidence play in things like fear or worry or discouragement? Or even depression. What role does confidence play? How about procrastination? (laughs) What role does it play? What role does confidence play in things like interpersonal relationships, success, or even the willingness to make huge sacrifices? What role does confidence play in in the willingness to lay your life down? I would describe confidence as faith wearing tennis shoes. That's the way I would describe confidence. Confidence is really built and based on something you believe, really, isn't it? So it's not just this standalone quality of humanity. Confidence is faith in action. There's a couple of true stories I read this week about. There were some farmers and uh, their families, and the, their, the part of the country they lived in was going through a horrible doubt uh, drought, <laughs> and they had a horrible doubt because of the drought. Um, and so they, they called for a prayer meeting at the local church. And so all these farmers and their families came and they all came in and there was a, there was a family that was coming late and there was a little eight-year-old girl that was even a little bit behind her family as they were going into the church door. And of all the people that came to pray for rain, it's the cutest thing. This little eight-year-old girl was the only one who carried an umbrella. that great? Oh my gosh. If confidence is a helpful and even needed part of life, is it possible to have too much of it, to be overconfident? Another story is told, true story, about a boy who's riding a scooter and having the time of his life, not paying attention to anything, and just runs headfirst into a tree. And there was, thankfully, a brain surgeon. Wouldn't you wouldn't that be great? <laughs> you just have a brain surgeon just kind of following you wherever you go, and and so that thank the Lord, there was a brain surgeon who was there, and he arrived at the, the boy first, and he begins to treat him. <laughs> and this 15-year-old boy comes in and he says, Excuse me, sir, I'm a Boy Scout. <laughs> I've taken first aid. <laughs> and he pushes aside this brain surgeon. I guess we can be a little overconfident at times or unwisely confident uh, at times as well. Would you describe yourself to be a confident person? Would you, I mean, just really, would you def- describe yourself to be a con- confident person? Is confidence a personality trait? Is confidence just something extroverts have? Can anyone become confident? Confidence lives and dies depending on what the object of your confidence is in. If your confidence is in yourself or in other people, in institutions, in money, in government, in religion, or in the Dallas Cowboys, you're going to be, you're going to be disappointed. Isn't it Stephen A. Smith that says about those Cowboys? They're an accident waiting to happen. Angela, you know I love you so much, buddy. I love you so much. And I I really think probably this year that I'm going to eat all my snarky words about the Cowboys. Uh, And so, but I promise you, I'll try to weep if you weep. (laughs) (laughs) And even more, I'll try to rejoice if you're rejoicing about it, okay? Because I love you so much, buddy. But how about this? If our confidence is in God and in God's Word, the fruit of that will be beyond we can, things that we can imagine in every aspect of our lives. And our, our text this morning really takes it a step further. It, it refines the focus. It's not just this general confidence in God. It's just not a general confidence in the 66 books of Scripture. It's almost like the, there's a bullseye in the text today. There's almost like this focus here. Look here, the text is calling us to do today. And that is, if, if our confidence rests in the finished work of Christ on the cross, it'll bear great fruit. It will bear great fruit, particularly in both as a source of comfort. So how many of you today need, And you're walking in, here going, oh man, I, I've really been needing comfort in some things I'm going through or in the realm of courage. And how many of you have found yourself backing away from hard things or challenging things or for sharing the gospel with other people? So our main point this morning is this. I think it's the main point of the text. Because of our confidence in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we have comfort in our struggles and courage in our mission. I think you'll see that unfold. I hope you'll see that unfold. Let's see if it's here. Let's go, let's dive in. First point this morning is our confidence must be in Christ and his cross. And he gives us every reason for it to be. So, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished and to fulfill the scripture, whispers out, I thirst. Jesus knew the end was near, but not because he was just about to die. It wasn't just a a biological thing. It's because now he knows everything is almost finished. That's that's why he's knowing this. Why why do we say that? Because it was in accordance with the scripture. And Jesus was fine-tuned, wasn't he, to what God had said in his word from Genesis to Malachi. Malachi. This narrative is not just some story. If you're visiting with us today, I mean, it it brings out of our hearts pity. And that's good. That's not a bad thing. But this is not some story to foster pity for Christ. As someone who's just being caught up as a victim of unfortunate circumstances, or that poor guy, he's just a pawn, controlled by evil men or the schemes of Satan. Satan. No, Christ is not in the final moments of being a victim. Christ is in the final moments of claiming victory. That's what's happening here. And so, once again, John highlights this in verse 28 in order to fulfill the scriptures, Jesus said, I thirst. Well, Jesus is thinking specifically of King David, lamenting the threats and attacks of his enemies, and and we see that in Psalm 69, verses 20 and 21, and it's in your notes. Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Y'all, Jesus knew that the ultimate fulfillment of this passage would not be found in King David's experience of thirst, but in King Jesus' experience of thirst. Jesus is the better David. Remember what we've studied as we go through verse by verse through this, this wonderful book. We've seen again and again, Jesus is better, isn't he? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And he's the better David. And he's better than anything that you thought you wanted or needed. Stephen, great, great song choices for us. Thank you for shepherding that time so very well. But this wasn't the first time Jesus was offered something to drink in the context of these last moments of his life, was it? You remember there was another time. Just before they nailed Jesus' hands to the cross, the executioners offered Jesus wine mixed with gall. Why is that significant? Well, that, that was an anesthetic it was, it's supposed to dull the pain. Don't go thinking, that, oh, the executioners are getting merciful. No, it, it, was, it was to dull the pain so that they, they could increase the duration of the person hanging on the cross. Maybe if they didn't feel as much pain, we can, we can just torture as long as possible. But Jesus, Jesus refused that. Because he would not have his senses dulled. You know, when we think about how we numb ourselves, and and maybe if you've been in that realm where you've numbed yourself because of alcohol or drugs, but it's not just that, is it? So often, if I get discouraged, can I tell you a guilty pleasure I have? There's a TV show I like. It's called Blue Bloods. I cry every show. I cry every show. They have this family table, and... And they said the other day, we don't meet here to eat. We meet here to meet. It's just so good. And then they share each other's burdens. And it's just so great. Well, nothing wrong with that. But sometimes they put it on eight hours in a row. (laughs) Jen can always tell when I'm discouraged. I don't even have to say anything. I'm on the third show of of Blue Bloods uh, because I'm, I'm just binging now. Well, Jesus, I I want to be more like this. I want to be more like the Lord. I don't want to be numbed. I want to be alert. I want to be alert to the people around me. I want to be alert to the commands of God. I want to be alert to the mission in front of me. So Jesus is just being a perfect example of that. He would not have his senses dulled. He wanted to obey his father fully. He wanted to fulfill all of scripture. He wanted to be alert to prayer. Remember, because he's praying on that cross and loving others until the end. But he wasn't just going to numb himself toward uh, the, the feelings of those kind of things. This is, this is amazing. He wants to be fully aware of every drop of the cup of God's wrath he's paying for. On the cross for our sins. I, I'll be honest with you, it's a good thing I'm not your Savior. I would have said, Get me an epidural, give me something. I don't want to feel anything. I'll die for you, but I don't want to feel the pain of it. Not Jesus. Every bit of the wrath of God that we deserved, He felt. Every bit of the shame that you and I have experienced because of our sin and because of the sin of others, he felt. And so he rejected that drink. Now, near the end of the cross, he's offered a bitter wine to drink. The drink was for common laborers. And given how hateful the executions, the executioners have been thus far, hard to imagine, again, that they're being merciful to Jesus. More likely, it was to give him a little bit of hydration to just lengthen the agony. Let's keep him alive a little longer. Let's, let's tease him with a drink. And that's what he's experiencing on the cross. Remember, he's had no hydration since that last supper. In fact, he sweats so profoundly, he's poured out of him not just sweat, but he's sweating drops of blood. He's had massive blood loss from the flogging, unimaginable dehydration. For we've got a lot of medical people in our church, so I'm so thankful for you guys, you men and women. I said guys, I mean men and women. And, and can you imagine the unimaginable dehydration? that he was going through. This time Jesus accepts the wine, but it's not just because he's so thirsty and so dehydrated. He's fulfilling scripture. And so he can say clearly what we will hear him say next. And we'll go to that in just a second. But before we go, go there, do you remember there was another time in the gospel of John, Jesus asked for a drink. You remember that? Where was he? He was was in what what part of the world? Samaria. And who did he meet? Woman at the well. Very good, you guys. As in John 4, if you're newer to your Bible, go back and look at that. John chapter 4. And there was this woman whose sinful and outcast life clearly demonstrated that she had a thirst for something that marriage or sex or relationships or religion could never satisfy. You do too. You do too. And the more we acknowledge it, the more we're going to see that Christ is the only one that can satisfy that thirst. Are you willing to acknowledge that? Have you acknowledged that lately? Have you, or have you been kind of let yourself be deluded that the thirst I've got can only be satisfied in a job promotion or or, or someone who hurt me feeling bad enough finally that they hurt me. That'll satisfy my life. They'll, they'll give me the mother of all apologies. That'll satisfy my life. Now, we're all thirsty, aren't we? For all the wrong things that can never satisfy. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He asks her for a drink, but it's not because he needed something to drink. He's going to turn the conversation into something he wants to give her to drink, isn't he? He's, he's uh, and he t- you remember what he told her? Whoever drinks from this well will only thirst again, but the water that I will give him will cause him or her to never be thirsty again. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. So now think about that. See, we read those passages and we just think somehow this is just going to kind of happen. The Bible unfolds. It's just going to happen. We're going to receive living water. The living water we receive from Christ had to be paid for. It comes to us freely, but His blood was shed in order to give us living water. And that's what what we're seeing here. Jesus is on the cross and He's dying of thirst in our place in order to purchase for us the water of life. His thirst was the price He paid so that we would never thirst again. Let me say that again. His thirst was the price he paid so that we would never thirst again. He's paying the price for the streams of living water that he promises us. He's giving us fullness of life and satisfaction with God, both in this life as well as in the life to come. And so they give him, they put a sponge, they put some wine on the sponge, and they raise it up on a hyssop branch. What in the world does a Bible call our attention to a hyssop branch? You know, when you're reading, you're just going, you could have made this Bible a lot shorter if you wouldn't have included things like that. You know what I mean? What's the deal with the hyssop branch? It's the same branch used in the first Passover. What, start thinking. Start thinking. Do you know how many times the Apostle John has mentioned Passover in these last few chapters? Again and again and again. Because this is the last Passover, isn't it? This is the final Passover. Those lambs couldn't take away sin. This lamb can. This lamb can. So this hyssop branch back in in, uh, the deliverance uh, from the, the angel of death passing over the people for the judgment their sins deserved. It was the same branch used to, to paint the lamb's blood over the doorposts and lentils. And now this is going to be a blood-stained hyssop branch too. But it's going to get its blood because not because it started off with blood, but because as you put that 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 sponge and that branch up to Jesus' bloodied face, this hyssop branch would be bloodied, too, because this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, don't you love how the storyline of the Bible, it's one story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's all about the king. It's all about Jesus and his great love for you. It's all about the price he paid so that we could have a confidence in his finished work. Let's keep going because that's where the text takes us. So Jesus has now enough strength to then cry out with a loud voice, it is finished, and he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. Matthew and Mark are the, are the, the uh, apostles that would speak of it being the loud voice. The word is "tetelestai." If you guys know, uh, you, you know something about the languages. And even if you don't, it's a word that, that if you've been in church for a while and, and, the, and heard the scriptures taught, you've, you've heard that word. It, it means to bring something to an end, to finish an assignment, to accomplish a task. It's a word a craftsman or an artist would use when their masterpiece was complete. It's the word of a warrior, the cry he would give when a battle is won. It's associated with victory, and that's what we're talking about here. Today, how would we see that sense of finished? If you listen to Dave Ramsey, here's a, here's a tetelestai kind of phrase. What do they love to do at Dave Ramsey? I'm debt free! Which actually could be a great spiritual sentence, couldn't it? I mean, not just about your bank account. Why we could say that about the blood of Jesus shed for sinners like me. Oh, it's such good news. How about this? You finish watching a Super Bowl, and they go to the most valuable player, and every Super Bowl, it's this. What are you going to do now that you've won the Super Bowl? I'm going to Disney World. That's you, baloney. That is, if you do, it's because they're paying your way, and no, anyway, sorry, a little sarcasm there. If you're visiting today, I just proved to you why I need a savior. I I can be sarcastic, and I'm sorry. Um, it's what a college graduate would say once he receives that diploma on the stage. It's what a marathon runner would say when you've crossed the finish line. This means there's a new state of affairs that's present. The door to a new creation has been opened. It's in, it was this place where it was always winter and never Christmas and now the sun is rising on the frozen tundra of a sin bound world, and the ice is beginning to melt. The curse is reversed. That's what's happening here. And it speaks of a completed action in the past that rules both the present, it's supposed to make a difference today. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? It's going to make a difference today. And it will continue to unfold in greater magnitude in the future. So it's a completed action with ongoing blessings. What is finished? What is finished? Because it'd be easy just to go, boy, poor guy, finally he's done suffering. (laughs) Right? It wouldn't be easy just to say that. Is that what it is? Did he just give up and give in to defeat? It wasn't to end his pain. That's not why Jesus said this. It was to complete his mission. You know, we said this last week. Again, if you're visiting today, if you're newer to the Bible, if you're, maybe you've, you maybe you looked to the Lord when you were younger, but you've lived a life you're not very proud of right now. Um, it's passages like this that I hope could warm your heart. Because when Jesus says it's finished, he's saying, I've finished my mission and have done everything you needed to have a right relationship with God, to have living water satisfy your soul. I've done everything you needed, including forgiveness. Welcome home. You know, isn't that just so cool? Victory has come because the work of redemption is finished. God's commands were perfectly obeyed. So let's now think about finished. God's commands were perfectly obeyed. God's prophecies were fulfilled comprehensively. Every promise, you guys, has been kept. Every temptation resisted. The nails that were driven through Christ's feet only drove Christ's feet through the serpent's head. That, those oh, the imagery. Just think of the imagery and all that Jesus is fulfilling on the cross. We just see the nails going through His feet. That's just driving His feet through the serpent's head. And the cup of God's wrath was drunk dry. That's what it means to be finished. The Jesus who throughout eternity experienced ongoing communion and conversation and intimacy and fellowship and love with His heavenly Father. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It's in your notes. For our sake... He was made, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's just one of the best news verses that Paul wrote. Jesus had only spoken to God as a father, as his father. Now he's crying out to him as his judge. And that was, was that statement, why, oh God, why are you forsaking me? Why are you forsaking me? Because he's saying that for you. That's what you and I should say. That's what we deserve to say, to be truly and eternally forsaken because of the judgment our sins deserve. And it's almost like Jesus said, scoot over. I'm going to become your sin. I'm going to become your sin. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's be careful about that. So I would, if you even would put it in the margin of your text or in the sermon notes, when he becomes sin for us, the theologians put it this way. They word things way better than I can. So he, they said this, it's in status, not in nature. That's so important. You guys, Jesus didn't become sin. Somehow he's not the son of God anymore. Somehow he's, you know, that somehow he's lost his deity. That's not what happened. He's being treated as though he were guilty of all of our sins in status, not in nature. In God's eyes, he stands guilty as he wears the ropes of our sinful filthiness because he bore the sin of the millions who would believe in him. In that sense, Jesus on that cross is looked at by God as the vilest sinner ever. Which, please... The devil's speaking to some of your guys' minds and they're just saying, you're too far gone. Your sins could not be cut. Jesus, he died, yeah, for people who've made some mistakes, but not for you. You guys, God is viewing Jesus as the sum total of all of the sin that all of the people who would believe in him have committed. He's the worst of sinners on that cross, even though he was guilty of none of it himself. So let's be specific. Can I really encourage you? I think that we've not done a, we haven't served you well when we've just said, Jesus died for your sin. That's true, right? It's true. But has that statement led you to just constant repentance? Sometimes I bet it does because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But you know what? I don't typically repent with general conditions about my life. When the Lord leads me to repentance, it's because he's getting very specific. He's getting specific. So let's get specific about what Jesus is bearing on the cross and finishing on the cross. Jesus is now counted as the murderer. Jesus is the blasphemer. Jesus is the porn lover. I was so ensnared by pornography from the, the eighth grade <coughs> up until I hate to tell you this up until I even was was dating Jan and I was so naive, you guys. I thought marriage was going to cure my lust. I love this woman. <coughs> And things worked pretty good the first three months of our marriage. I I worked at Shell Oil Company downtown New Orleans, and and I was doing fine. I I wasn't taking second looks. When the beer commercials with the bikinis came on, I changed the channel. It was good. About three months in, I noticed, oh, my God, I took a second look. I love my wife. I'm happy in marriage. What's wrong? me what's wrong with me Jesus was treated as though he were the porn addict that I felt like I was see that gets that gets to me he was innocent of that temptation never gave in to that temptation i gave in more often than i would ever want to to even count But he was treated as the porn lover. He was treated as the glutton, the unforgiver. Do you know your unforgiveness cost Jesus his life, but he laid his life down for it. He was treated as the impatient one, the arrogant one, the bitter one, the unbelieving one. He was the self-sufficient one, the lazy one, the unsubmitted and disrespectful wife. He was counted for that. He was the unloving husband who didn't love his wife. He controlled his wife through being either a dictator or he abdicated every responsibility he could find. He was the religious hypocrite. He was the worrier. He was the money lover. He was the one who only wanted what God could give, but he didn't want God. He was the liar, he was the adulterer, he was the lustful, he was the angry, the one ruled by wanting people's acceptance, he was the manipulator. On and on and on it goes, and if I haven't given any sense of the sins that you struggle with, write yours in, because he was counted as though he committed them all. And he did it all until he had drank the cup of God's wrath dry. Donald MacLeod said this. This in your notes. His identity contracted <clears throat> to the point where the whole truth about him was that he was the sin of the world. He was carrying it. Heaven held him answerable for it. He was it in status. It was here, all of it in his body, being condemned in his flesh. Because of it, he was a doomed and ruined man. God's pure eyes could not look on him, nor heaven entertain his cry. Whenever Good Friday comes, I encourage you to do this. Think about Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so me So here was the answer Jesus experienced. Here was the answer. It's kind of an uncomfortable silence, isn't it? First time son never heard his father answer a prayer. And it's because he stood in the place of sinners, justly condemned. That didn't need to be explained. Jesus was drinking the cup of God's wrath dry. All of it was paid in full. So when we think of all of the sobering things we've just talked about, to tell us die, to tell us die, finished, finished, finished. And he bowed his head, which, the, I mean, it's just the coolest thing to look at what some of the, the guys who understand the language is better. I, I'm not, I don't I don't understand English well. Um, but these guys, you know, it's easy to think or you've seen on the dramatizations of the passion that oh, it, it is finished. And he goes. Bleh. That's not what the tense of this was. The tense of this was. It is finished. It's paid for. Adultery, paid for. Unforgiveness, paid for. Porn-loving, paid for. Money-loving, paid for. It's finished. And this is what he did. Victor. Victory. That's the way the way it's depicted. It's finished. The law is fulfilled. The devil is defeated. Wrath is satisfied. Sin is punished. Promises are kept. Prophecies fulfilled. So that sinners like you and me could be saved. Oh, so are you confident in that? Oh, the Lord wants to give us grace to have faith in what he did there. Are you confident in the finished work of Christ on the cross? Or is your confidence in something else? And you probably need to ask yourself that tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow morning. Maybe tomorrow at 3. When you're going to be tempted again to put your confidence in someone or something else besides Jesus. Because if we are growing in our confidence In the finished work of Christ on the cross, you guys, it's going to be the source of our comfort. And it's going to be the source of our courage. And that's the last two points this morning. He says, the second point is our comfort comes from Christ and his cross. And this is, you know, I think you'll see this as it unfolds. It's comfort for our struggles. Did you notice, and so again, as you read your Bible, try to notice things like this. So in in verse 31, it says it was the day of preparation. In verse 42, it was the day of preparation. Why are those bookends there? It's like that section, we're supposed to be picking up on something. So what are we supposed to be picking up on there? Well, the Jewish leaders have just killed the son of God. (laughs) Oh, but God forbid that we uh, disobey his commands. (laughs) Let's kill him. While we obey him. Hey, have you done that? Have you said, I really want nothing to do with following Jesus? I, I, that's not my big passion, but I will be willing to be religious. Alan said this so well yesterday in our new members' class. Have you ever tried to live righteously just for the benefits it could give you? That's what these guys are doing. It has nothing to do with the glory of God. It's, it says in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, this is in your notes. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So that's what's driving them. Doesn't matter if they just crucified the Son of God. Let's make sure he gets off that cross. And it's even worse, it's not just a normal Sabbath that's coming, it's a Passover Sabbath. So they're running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to obey God's commands. Even though it's on their own terms and for their own goals. So I want you to notice something, that even though Jesus has declared, it is finished. So get this, I mean, I mean visualize, I, but I think this would be, this would be healthy, biblical visualization or imagination. Would you picture this? Jesus has declared it's finished while everyone around him is running around trying to atone for their own sins. Everyone running around is trying to earn favor with God. Everyone is running around to exhaustion, trying to look good in the eyes of others. We're supposed to be be gripped by that because then the question comes, who Am I more like them? Is the finished work of Christ in front of me, but I'm living more like them? I don't have peace. I don't have assurance. I'm worried sick about things. I, I, and maybe if I can just work harder, or maybe I could just, if I could make up for the things I've done wrong, or maybe if I just do this, so-and-so will really think I'm this way or that way. Oh, there's a lot to learn about us in this, isn't there? Finished work is right in front of them. But they're living like it's not finished. They're living like it's up to them to finish something. One, one theologian said, if you really need something, a visual to imagine this, imagine what you do the day before Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Christmas Eve... I mean, when you think, if somebody says Christmas Eve, oh, Christmas Eve, it's warm fuzzies, and it's such a wonderful time. I wish then we could follow you with a camera. Because probably your real experience of Christmas Eve is I'm running around trying to get that last present, bake that last pie. I mean, all the things that we're doing to try to get some equilibrium and celebration in our lives. That's what this guy was saying, but way worse. It made our running around at Christmas seem like child's play. They're so stressed out in their struggle to gain acceptance. They're so stressed out to get some kind of peace. They don't don't have real, real living hope. They're working hard for their forgiveness and to earn a salvation that Jesus already won for them. So when you're stressed, when you feel condemned by your sin, when you feel like you need to add to your obedience what Christ has already done and finished for you, when you look for your acceptance in others instead of your acceptance in Christ, are you finding your comfort then in the finished work of Christ or in what you hope to achieve on your own? There's supposed to be comfort through the finished work of Christ. I got to be honest with you. I, you know, I do as a pastor, I do a lot of counseling, try to do biblical counseling. But I think sometimes I haven't served you well in that because I. Yeah, it's obvious you need comfort. But I'm, I, my prayers, if you really kind of tracked them, probably have more to do with hoping that you'll have a changed experience. I hope your comfort could come because your pain would go. I hope your comfort could come because your marriage is just magically better. I wish your comfort could come because your wayward kid came home like the prodigal child. I wish that those those are not bad things. But are those things that God wants to base your comfort on? Because if that's what we're basing our comfort on, it's no wonder we're so comfortless. But if our comfort is based on the finished work of the cross that we most need it, we, more than anyone else, will not just experience a comfort that's based on feelings. It's a comfort that is based on the progressive change of our lives. Do you realize maturity and, as a Christian? Come on, we got to grow up a little here. Maturity is very involved with how God blesses us with the experiences of walking with Him. He's wanting to teach us to trust in him and not in other things. And and so there's there's a transformative aspect to comfort, not just an emotional aspect to it. And that's what God's wanting to do so that when everyone else is running around like it's Christmas Eve with all their stress and worry, and who's going to win the next presidential election? In Christ, a solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Why? Because it's finished. It's such good news, isn't it? But hang on. Jesus is dead now. He's not speaking from the cross anymore. At least on this worst day of human suffering, there was still life in his words. Let me ask you this. What do you do when life is still really hard and heartbreaking, but you really, the experience of your life is heartbreak and silence? Boy, I don't do well with silence. I don't think well when it's silent. I make, I make assumptions when things are silent. I make assumptions about others. You ever do that? You text somebody, and because they haven't texted you back in 33 seconds, <laughs> I wonder what I did to offend them. Do they like me? Or do they hate me? What do you do with silence When you're hurting, what do you do with silence? Well, the scriptures give us something amazing here. They have to get this blasphemer, this so called Messiah, this self proclaimed king, we gotta get him off the cross. So let's break his legs. D.A. Carson explains this. I put it, it's just so good. I put it in your notes. The normal Roman practice was to leave crucified men and women on the cross until they died. And this could take days. And then leave their rotting bodies hanging there to be devoured by vultures. If there were some reason to hasten their deaths, the soldiers would smash the legs of the victim with an iron mallet. Quite apart from the shock and additional loss of blood, this step prevented the victim from pushing up with his legs to keep his chest cavity open. Strength in the arms was soon insufficient, and asphyxia followed. But the Romans were not in charge of this, were they? The Jews were not in charge of when Jesus would die. Jesus would give up his spirit when he finished his race. And when he had, he was already dead because he gave up his spirit. And this too fulfilled the promise that not a bone would be broken. I hope you enjoy this little part. Psalm 34, 19 and 20. So here's the prophecies that are being fulfilled. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Wow. That's significant. That sounds really significant, doesn't it? And then in Exodus, this goes back even further. So here we go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. What's the big deal? What in the world is this trying to get across to us? Well, you know what the big deal about the bones is? Go back to see Joseph is now right. Where is Joseph? He's in Egypt. He's not supposed to be ultimately in Egypt. He's supposed to be in a promised land, the place that God has for his people. And so what is he saying? He's dying, and one of his last requests is what? Take my bones. I, wish, I can't go into this. My dad played an instrument called The Bones. I wish, I'll tell you about it after church. Um, and take my bones with you when, when God sets us free. Take my bones with you back to the promised land. Okay, that's interesting. What is, what's, okay, is there more to that? Well, it's, there is more to that. You remember in Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones? It's amazing, a bone Bible study. <laughs> I don't know if you've had a Bible study on bones, but so here's this bone Bible study and this valley of dry bones because it speaks of our need for a Savior. It speaks that we're dead in sin and unrighteousness and we need someone to make us alive. And so the breath the word goes out and, and them, them bones, oh gosh, you guys need... It may be time for me to turn in my resignation. I just want to start singing these songs. Uh, my dad, this was my dad. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Them. Okay, sorry. Um, that was for you, Dad. <laughs> and the, the spirit breathes upon them, and they don't stay dead. Oh, man. I wonder, I wonder if John. As he as it's as now it's moved from Good Friday into Silent Saturday, boy, meditate on Silent Saturday. How how did the disciples endure Silent Saturday? Resurrection isn't yet. Oh, but there was a promise of it. The Jews who knew their 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 Old Testament would have understood something. Can you imagine? John is is just grieving and he's silent and he has self doubt and he knows it's finished but. And then and then he goes, oh my goodness, they didn't break his bones. What does that mean? There's coming a resurrection. That's what the whole Bible study on bones was about. It's that it's not just the bloodshed that we needed. It's a new life we needed. It's a resurrection life that we needed. And so, isn't that another source of comfort? But it's rooted in the finished work of Christ. It's rooted in how he was totally in control of his cross, even to the point of giving up his last breath. The last point is this. So, it's not just comfort. Are you being comforted by the focus, a laser like focus, and calm constant repetition of the gospel to yourself about the finished work of Christ, but there was something else that we need, and it's courage for the mission. It's noteworthy that not that the body of Jesus, not that he was taken down, it's noteworthy who took him down. Did you pick up on it when we read it? I hope you're already there. The, look, raise your hand if the, I, I, I already started seeing that when we just read the text. Anybody? Anybody? Oh, you're so humble. I bet some of you guys did. Um, It's noteworthy. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. Are you a secret disciple? Come on. How many of you had chances to stand up for Jesus today? And you just went the other way. I did. I had some opportunities I didn't feel like I had the right words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly. He lived his life each day trusting that Jesus was the Messiah, but he was ruled by fear. I think that's so there's so much of us here, isn't there? Oh, I believe you, Jesus. I believe you died on the cross to save me from my sin, but I'm still ruled by fear. Now he steps forward. Unafraid to be known as Christ's follower. The threat of persecution hadn't changed. Something changed in him. Somehow he's had the courage not to be ruled by fear, and he goes to Pilate to ask for Christ's body so he could bury him. He was willing to stand in the gap between the hate of Pilate and Rome and the hate of the Jewish leaders. If there was any time there was a threat to being put to the same kind of death as Jesus, it's coming to get his body off of the cross. The only difference was now that Joseph, the only thing that changes in this text is that the work was finished. I think that's saying something to us. Courage is not a personality trait. Courage is is wrapped up in love and gratitude for what Jesus did on the cross for me. And so I'm willing to follow him. Where he leads, I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. You guys, confidence in the cross is the source of courage to both carry our cross and proclaim the cross. It's, that's where courage comes from. I'm hoping that the, the Lord, the Holy Spirit is planting these seeds in your hearts. And that over these next few months, we're going to find our time. We haven't even gotten to the resurrection yet. That's going to have a big part to play in all this too. And we haven't gotten to Pentecost yet. And that's going to have a big part in this too. But just the finished work on the cross gave fearful, scary cat people courage to stand up for Jesus. But it wasn't just Joseph. It was Nicodemus. This premier teacher of the Jews from John 3, who, oh, I'm gonna I'm interested. Everyone who raise your hand, who wants to follow Jesus? A few people do. I'm interested, but I don't have to raise my hand to show it. I mean, just that kind of thing. We're so fearful and hesitant, and Nicodemus came by night to see Jesus. Now, not only is Nicodemus a follower, he's come out of the darkness. (laughs) And he's come into the light. And the only thing I could say is he's come into the light of the finished work of Christ on the cross. He's come into that light. You guys, we're living in that light. We have that light 24-7. God, do more in us than we see happening here. Please, God. Nicodemus is is not just a follower of Jesus, but a lavish worshiper. So this is fun. Here's a little little uh, quiz or little thing you can throw out at parties. <laughs> How many wise men who, who brought gifts of, of worship to Jesus are there in the Bible? What's your, what's your knee-jerk reaction? Three, right? Well, I would say there's four. Nicodemus was the fourth. Why do we say that? Remember the ones who came from the east had gold and Frankincense and myrrh. Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of myrrh for burial. 75 pounds. You guys remember the woman in John who came and broke open the vial of perfume, poured it upon Jesus as an expression of her worship? It was worth one year of salary. You know what that 75 pounds of myrrh were worth? If you never spent any of your income and you started working at who knows when. If you're Alan, it was when you're three. Because um, <laughs> he's such a good work ethic. I want to be more like Alan when I grow up. But if you started, let's say you started at 16 working. And you never spent any money. It was just income, just income, just income. A lifetime of savings would be equivalent to what Nicodemus is bringing to Jesus. And I don't think it's a stretch to say this. He gave his life. So, of course, as an act of worship, I give him mine to use however he wants to use it. His courage came from the cross. And remember this. This is one last thing and we'll close. Stephen, go ahead and come on up, my friend. Do you remember that during that night meeting with Nicodemus, do you remember what happened? That's when Jesus not only talks about you need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. But he also told Nicodemus how he was going to die. And what did he say? He, was, he talked about the, the, bronze, the serpent of bronze in the, in the you know, wilderness and how that serpent was lifted up. And whoever looked at that serpent wouldn't, be, wouldn't die from the plague. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men. And to myself. And do you realize? Again, this gave me goosebumps as I'm studying it. Do you realize? He's seeing it with his very eyes. He comes with, with Joseph of Arimathea, and, and Jesus has said, When I be lifted up. And Nicodemus is seeing it right as it's happened. He did it, it's finished. Let's go serve him. And that's what they did. That's what they did. And that began the journey of a a church that was increasingly bold in their faith and in their living for Christ. Last little part is is just this, just again, just another sweet part of scripture. The tomb was in a garden. (laughs) Again, you know, It's like, if the Lord wasn't trying to prove to you how in control he is and how he loves you and has a controlled plan for your life, your sin and Satan and government and your paycheck and all your sickness, none of that's in control. He's in control. And so he puts all these little nuggets here. So they they place the innocent son of God He's de- he dies and is buried in this garden tomb. And you go back to the beginning. Here's the first Adam. The Bible calls Jesus the last Adam. Here's the first Adam. He disobeys God and dies and introduces death to all of mankind. And all of us are, are guilty in Adam. Here's the son of God instead of Adam causing the rest of us to die. Jesus says, here's how I'm different than Adam. I'm going to die in your place. And from this garden will not come death. From this garden will come eternal life. Let's stand. Let's stand. You guys, as we sing, I I just want to encourage you. Um, Our prayer people today are Jonathan and Kenzie and Marcus and Michelle. Would you guys come on up? I want to encourage you, this would be a great day if you've struggled to be confident in just in your life and you're realizing, oh my goodness, I want to be confident in the finished work of Christ, come receive prayer. If if you've struggled to have comfort, there's just areas of your life and you're just realizing, I keep looking for circumstances to give me my comfort and I'm ignoring the cross. (laughs) I'm not going to ignore the cross if he loved me to do that for me. That's my source of comfort in any struggle or trial. And if you've been like me, you've you've avoided opportunities to take a stand for Jesus more often than you're actually doing it, how about we pray together? How about we say, we got this in common? Jesus died to pay for that too. And now because of what he's done for us at the cross, oh God, give us courage to live out our mission for your glory in the advancement of the gospel in Midland and beyond. Amen, Stephen.